The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now if you would, go back with me to the text. we got two texts that we're going to look at, and I want to spend just a moment to go back where we left off last um, Lord's Day evening in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, after establishing marriage, the foundation of the family, then the foundation of family and the relationships between parents and children are addressed on both sides of the coin. First of all, from the child to the parent. Look in Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, children are taught submission in the authority structures of life by the call to submission to their parents, the God-ordained authority structure, that's in the Lord. Now this phrase, in the Lord, has three dynamics to it. Dynamic number one, this affirms the fact that part of parenting is evangelism. It's a crucial part. It is you want them to be in the Lord and the Lord to be in them. Secondly, you are teaching them that their confidence when they submit in obedience is not in those whom you obey, but in the Lord. Your confidence is in the Lord, that he is ruling and overruling, and you can trust him. And then thirdly, obeying your parents in the Lord is stating the limitation of obedience. Whatever authority structure we find ourselves in, in government, in the church, uh, in business, wherever we find ourselves, as we submit, uh, the limitation is, is that we must never obey that which would cause us to transgress the commands of the Lord. So with those three things in mind, hear this exhortation, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, let me speak just one other moment about obedience in affirming something we've already said. How does this obedience work with our parents? Well, we are called to honor our father and mother. And when we are under the authority of our parents, then that honor is to be seen through obedience. So we teach our children to honor us Through obedience, with their eyes fixed upon the Lord, he is the circumference of their obedience and he is the focus of their obedience. And it's in the context of trusting the Lord that we teach them this. But as we teach them obedience, we have to realize the honoring of parents is lifelong. But the honoring of parents through obedience is for a season. It is for a season of time. So that's why last week I gave you the five P 
parenting seasons. And let me just go back and remind you of them. There are five of them I laid out for you. Uh, as a child is, comes into our life, then our first parenting is control. They are utterly dependent upon us. Therefore, in the initial stages of life, we have to exercise a benevolent control when they sleep, how much they eat, what they eat, how they all of those things are crucial because of their dependency upon us. Then secondly, we begin to teach the commands and the precepts of the Lord. So we give the commands that they are to obey. Then thirdly, that leads us to coaching them in life. And not only have we in command shown them what to do, but now we're also teaching them how to make decisions in life as they process and move from immaturity to maturity. We call that stage adolescence. Then fourthly, we are, then we find ourselves moving to the area of counseling our children in the decisions that they're called to make in life. And then finally, as they, particularly as they leave us and cleave to another, they're no longer directly under our authority structure. They have left to cleave to another. That means they are, what was once their immediate family is no longer their immediate family. They now have their own immediate family and we as parents have become a part of their extended family. Thus they are, we do not control, we do not command. We've even moved beyond coaching and counseling into consulting. Now this morning I said to you one of the great blessings of a pastor is that he gets a chance to follow up on sermons through the inevitable questions that the people who hear the sermons ask him. And last week was no different in the morning or the evening. And after I laid these five out, I was um, not deluged, but I was given a number of questions about these seasons of parenting. Can I ask you a question? How many of you, and if you're one of those that asked me the question, refrain at this moment. How many of you, question, how many of you can identify the question that I received about these five seasons of parenting? How many of you think you know what question was the predominant question that came to me? Hello. A little afraid to do it, aren't you? Huh? Pastor. All right, tell us the age. We go from control to command to coach to counsel and to consult. What age does that take place? Well, I tried then to share. Well, it's not so much age. That's going to vary from child to child. In fact, it has varied greatly in my span of life. Adolescence was considered finished by age 18 in the 1950s. Today, it's age 27. So you can see there are no fixed timetables here whatsoever. Now, but what you're looking at is what is their process, where is their maturity, and where is their station in life? Obviously, when they have left us to cleave to another in marriage, they're no longer under control, no longer under command. They're not even under coaching. You have now been moved into their consultation society. That's where you are at that point in time. 
But one of the reasons why I refrain from giving you times hard and fast is because the not only the seasons of life and our situations in life affect this, but the dynamics of the particulars in life. For instance, I basically followed a rule of thumb that as my kids were in high school, I tried to teach them how to make decisions, what to make decisions, and wherever it was appropriate, I would let them make that decision. Uh, and I could give you many examples of that and then live with the consequences of the decision that they made because that would be a learning experience also. They didn't always make good decisions. And that was okay because when they got the bad results of the good decisions, they might learn how to make a better decision next time. So that was part of that process. And then as they go off to college, <laughs> we kind of start moving clearly into the counseling area. Well, one of my kids that will remain nameless, he, <laughs> I did not do that on purpose. One of my three XY chromosomes, <laughs> uh, I, one of my three, um, but he did say that I could share this, uh, went through a pretty challenging time uh, while he was in college. So challenging, and my concern was so great, I, I got in the car and drived, drove eight hours to just to spend three or four hours with him and to talk through some issues. And I, would, and I was uh, into the council season, <clears throat> but I went back to coaching, and I went back to direct coaching, even though I thought I had moved to council, but I had to go back to coaching. And due to his response or lack of response, I then had to go back to command. And I had to go all the way back because of the dynamics of that situation. Now, Harry, my goodness, I was kind of hoping you'd give me some clear-cut thing. Well, once they leave you and they're married, it's consultation. Now, you don't ever go back to the other. But... When they're on their way and they're all under your authority, even as they've set up geographical separation, maybe living in an apartment or whatever, and you kind of know you're in the consultation, I mean, in the counseling arena, there will may be times that you have to step in. They would be few and they would be extraordinary, but there are those times, which is why you as a parent always need to pray for wisdom. This isn't a formula. Parenting is not a science. It is a God-blessed art and skill. And these guidelines are exactly that, guidelines. You always need the wisdom of God as you go through the process of guiding your children in the Lord. Now go on with me a little bit further with what he says. And then he says, honor your father and mother. Now he speaks to children, not only obey, but your obedience comes from a broader sanctity of the family in which as a child in the home, you are to honor your father and mother. That should be, folks, this, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, 
That means we need to teach biblical principles of civility and manners to our children. How do you sit at a table? How do you talk to an adult? How do you shake hands? How do you meet people? All of those things are part of life. Sometimes in our child-centered homes, we just expect people to respond to our children instead of teaching our children how to respond to people. What is the one perfect case of childhood development in the Scripture? This is not hard. Jesus, always a safe answer. He grew in what? In wisdom and stature in wisdom, in favor with God, and what? Favor with man. Mary and Joseph raised Jesus to know how to establish relational skills in the lives of others. How do you do that? How do you speak to a, how do you speak to a peer? How do you speak to a sibling? One day at Christ's covenant, well, here at Briarwood, one day at Christ's covenant, I had been away uh, for our two-week vacation, and I came back, and when I walked out between worship services, I walked into the restroom, and two 10-year-old boys were in there, and they were laughing when I walked in. They got quiet, and they looked at me, and one of them, uh, one of them looked at me and said, Hi, Pastor Reader, we're so glad you're back. It's good to have you home. I said, thank you. The other, the other child did this. This is not, this is not a preacher's illustration. This was a life experience. The other one came up, kicked me in the shin and said, where you been, Harry? <laughs> that was a dead giveaway as to how my name was being referred to in that family. I know where they learned that. I know what that reveals. You see, we are in that moment where we have to, if you want civility reestablished in the culture, it needs to be taught in the culture of your family by parents. And you need to take the time to do that. All right, so I don't care who moves here and tells me that I quit teaching my children to say yes sir and no sir, yes ma'am and no ma'am. They're going to continue to do it. That's what they're going to do. We are not going to dummy it down. I would encourage you to think through. I'm not going to give you a list. What does it mean to teach our children how to speak with respect to their peers, to you, to others? I had an opportunity to learn this on a number of occasions. I, my dad was in baseball. I played baseball. And so one of the great things in my life was to go into the backyard when, and dad would say, hey, son, you want to go catch? And we'd go catch. I still can't watch the field of dreams. I have to cut it off at that moment. I lose it every time. Dad, you want to catch? I mean, son, you want to catch? Sure. We'd go in the back and catch. I'll never forget one time at 1342 Tarrington Avenue. We're in the back. We're catching. And Dad is teaching me how to throw a knuckleball. And we're going back and forth with it. And then across the street, the Whitakers lived there. Rusty and Rodney, they were good friends. And I, I loved them. And I, I was nice to them because they had a car and I could ride to school in the 10th grade but with them. And so they were, one of them, I think it was Rodney, uh, yelled across the street and said, hey, 
what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm throwing the baseball with my old man. The next pitch that came from my dad sent me about 25 yards into the next yard. And he looked at me and he said, son, when you learn how to speak about me in public, we'll catch again. I was taught pretty quickly (laughs) that my terms of my father and the way I talked about him to others was not to be an occasion for me to elicit humor, but to always respect him. He's my father. I am so grateful that he taught me that. I am not grateful for the fact that I could hardly use my hand to touch anything, my left hand, because that fastball, forget the knuckleball, that fastball sent me back about 25 yards, but he got my attention. Those are things that in life that are absolutely crucial that we teach people how to we teach our children how to function in relationships with other people in life as we as we give them commands and as we coach them and as we develop them in life honor your father and mother that teaches you how to honor others in life in appropriate situations which is the first commandment with a promise i'll never forget i'll just i'll probably be a little controversial here but i'll never forget um, how my dad and mom just taught me uh, about modesty in clothing, modesty, uh, don't brag on yourself, modesty in conversation. Those were things I'm so grateful that they taught and they expected, and if they weren't there, then they would step in and correct me appropriately. And I long for our children to have that, that you love them enough to be able to give them those kind of directions. I'm trying to be as practical as I possibly can in, uh, in light of that. Even in the way you dress, you're making a statement to the people you're going to meet. The way you dress is making a statement. My grandfathers, uh, he had um, seven brothers who all came to Christ. They were godly men, the Reader Brothers, they were called. And um, and I remember I would go to church every once in a while with my granddaddy and his brother, uh, his brothers Lonnie and Otis. And I learned two things from Lonnie. And um, we would sit at Calvary Independent Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they would pass the offering plate. And my Uncle Lonnie would, I'd see him reach in and put in a $5 bill or a $10 bill or something like that. And I said to him, I said, Uncle Lonnie, I know that you, uh, I know that you um, tithe every Lord's Day morning. Why are you still giving on Sunday night? And he said to me, I'll never forget this, it has almost nothing to do with it, but just accept that it's amazing what children pick up. Uh, as I would watch my dad and mom participate in the offering every Sunday. Listen, folks, I know I'm, I'm off subject here, but I know that there's a place for online giving and I'm grateful for all of the things that are there. I understand bookkeeping. I understand all of that. But I just, um, I pray and ask that our children be able to see their parents worship the Lord with his tithe and his offerings. That's how I learned it. 
And then I remember him telling me, well, yeah, I've already tithed, but the Bible says, shall I appear before the Lord empty-handed? He said, young man, we have appeared before the Lord tonight. He is here. And he was always so uh, neatly, not extravagantly, because he was a mechanic. He probably had one suit. (laughs) But he was always so neatly dressed. And he said, I've come to see my king. And I remember how that impacted my life. Those are basic things that we are constantly called to. Our children have to learn those things that are honorable in life and how to honor not only a father and mother, but the father and mother teach us how to honor others as well. And then he says this, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Obedience to God's law, can we cannot obey the law to be saved. But we can, out of love to the Savior, obey the law. And God has built consequences. There are consequences to disobedience, and there are consequences to obedience. And when we learn, like a commandment that comes with a promise, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Obviously, that is a general promise, and it is a general promise that comes. But if I want my children to have a long life for Christ, I can't control the dictates and sovereign providences of God. But I can minister to them that they live in such a way that they are on that trajectory for life. That they may live long in the land for Christ and by the patience of Christ with them. And then he turns from the children and he looks to the fathers, the parents directly by addressing the father. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is the absence of the father's presence and leadership and guidance that becomes the provocation for anger. Now, I spoke about this extensively last week, so I'm not going back over it again. And as much as I believe we need a rebirth of biblical parenting, I believe we also need a rebirth of an understanding of the distinctives in parenting, fathering and mothering. I don't know whether those are words, but I decided this week I was going to make it up and use it. Fathering and mothering. What does it mean to be a father? My heart, my admiration, and my affection goes out to every single parent that's trying to fill in the gaps. And I'm grateful to see in a church like this the desire when there's a single parent that we step in with spiritual uncles and aunts and fathers and mothers in the faith. But the fact is that God designed children to need a father with the attributes of biblical masculinity and Christian manhood to put the touch on parenting that only he can give. And then the mother is then set up to put the touch that she gives. We are not going to embrace a model 
that the man goes out, lives his life, and brings the checkbook home while the mother raises the children. I am certainly aware in the early stages of the maturation of a child, the mother has a leading role in her nurturing gifts, biological gifts, her nurturing gifts um, in biblical femininity. I understand that. There's a reason why over here, fathers name their children in the blessing. I baptize the child. And if you'll notice, I always give the child back to the mother because I know she has this primary gift of nurturing. But that does not mean the absence of the father. And there is an increasing need for the father to lay hold of that moment. I do a lot of study of leadership on the battlefield. And I've tried to learn from the battlefields of life because I believe I'm in a war as a Christian. It's a war that's been won by my Savior, but there are still battles to be fought. Various battles to be fought. So I've looked at it, but here's something that I remember in my journal as I would continually write about those moments. There would be the amazing moment when somebody would be, receive a lethal wound on the battlefield. And when the wound came, their immediate response was always to ask for their mother. Always. And then in that moment when they would ask for their mother, if it became obvious that life was ebbing away, how many times that combat soldier would say, tell my daddy, I did my duty. Tell him, I died facing the enemy. That's what we want our father to know, even as we cry out for the touch that only a mother can give. Fathering and mothering I may have shared this before with you. I just don't know where all I share these things. And if I have, just put up with it, please. But I remember how this came home to me in a, you know, in a moment of, uh, of athletics when I, um, I had a, uh, I had a play at the plate and the runner came in and we collided and, um, and I tagged him out. And then um, I looked down, it was a pretty big collision, and I looked down, and my left arm, which was the glove and had the ball in it, I wanted to make sure I hadn't dropped the ball, and I looked down, and there in my glove, uh, in the glove was the ball, but I then looked at my hand in the glove and noticed that in my arm, that my arm was now in an L shape, literally an L shape. And I looked at it, and I said, oh, no. <laughs> And the coach says, come here, let me help you. I said, no, <laughs> I want to go see Mama. Well, the, the baseball field was two miles away from home. I just took out walking. I was going home to find my mother. That's where I was going. My mother heard me about three blocks away. And she came out and she came to me where I was coming up, yelling her name. And, um, and so she came and she looked at it. And then she kind of, I don't necessarily recommend the ethics behind this, but you can see the mother coming out. She looked at me, saw the, the, how big my eyes were, because by this time, walking home, looking at this for two miles, I was pretty well convinced I was about to get an amputation. I, I was absolutely convinced of that. And she looked at that and saw me 
and saw what was happening, and she took the dish towel that she had ran holding on to, and she threw it over my arm, put her arm around me, and said, Son, it's going to be okay. I think it's just a bad sprain. And uh, that, that's kind of called an outright lie. I don't know where that fits in ethics or not. I, I'm not. I don't think it was speaking truth in love, but there's a lot of love in what she said. And when my mama said that, okay, I, I calmed down immediately. So we got to the doctor. Doctor was not happy because he got called off of the. Uh, he got called off of the. Um, um, he got called off the golf course. And so he was not happy. So he came in that Saturday afternoon and he looked at it and he said, well, this one's a bad one. And uh, he did not have my mother's instincts. He said, this one's a bad one. And my dad had just got there. Now, folks, we basically went to health clinics when I grew up and in minor league baseball, a lot of money at the end of the month. And there were no health insurance plans that we had whatsoever. So this was all cash. And um, I could see my dad, the meter was running. He realized that. And the, the doctor said, this is a pretty bad one. I'm going to need to put him to sleep to set this. And my dad said, what does that mean? He said, well, I'll need to keep him tonight. And uh, we'll have to put him in some anesthesia and uh, put him to sleep. And Dad said, next words, how much is that going to cost? And he told him. And then he said, uh, well, is there another possibility? You got another solution? And he said, well, I got a shot. I'll give it to him. And uh, it's going to hurt. But I think I can do it. And uh, I remember my dad said, uh, let's do that. Uh, he can handle it. I'll never forget what happened. And I'm just trying to get this point of fathering and mothering. They did a study. And they found out that when a mother corrects her children, there is a default position they move to. Now, we're not going to start guessing. Let me go ahead and tell you where it is. They come alongside of their child. Usually put their arm around them and tell them what they did wrong. And correct them. Fathers have a default position. It's face to face. Eye to eye. And I'll never forget that happened in that, in that emergency room. As soon as the verdict was in, the doctor went and got the needle. That's the largest needle I've ever seen in my life. And then I saw my mother come over, put her hand on me. I said, son, I'm right here. I'll be right with you. I saw my dad at the end of the bed look at me and say, son, you can do this. Would you like to know how many times those two dynamics have reminded me when I face challenges in life? I can hear my father. You can do this. The challenge is in front of you. You can do this. And when my dad said that, I believed my dad. And when my mother said that, I knew she would be there. Fathering and mothering have overlap in the raising of children, but they are distinctive. 
And our children need both. They need both of them. And as a father, I don't want my children not to have my presence as a father. And I don't want them to be robbed of the presence of their mother. That's what I don't want to happen. Because we, by God's providence, brought them into the world. And God has placed us there for them that they may live long on the earth. And I don't want to provoke them to anger. But I want to raise them in the discipline and the nurture, an environment and clarity, framework, direction, discipline, and nurture, an environment that a father and mother are designed to give to their children that is unique, that each one brings the uniqueness as they overlap together in their marriage. Which brings me to a statement I have got to say. Good parenting begins with the priority of maintaining the integrity, the vitality, and the intimacy of your marriage. Don't your children need your unity. But your children are not the reason for your unity. They are the result of your unity. And that which God has called you and equipped you to do, you're called to do in each other's life. So that one plus one equals one and we speak with one voice. Which now allows me to make another point. Have any of you ever noticed that the last thing a child wants you to do if they want their own way is for the father and the mother to be united and speak with one voice? Y'all ever noticed that? Have you ever had your children create amazing strategies to divide you? I mean, I had one. Daddy, mother said that I could go out Friday night if you said so. And then I'd go back to mother. Mother, daddy said I could go out. Is it all right with you? Now, I lied, but I tried to find a way to get. Never would I ask them that question in the same room. I made sure they were in separate rooms. And I went, hey, dad, mom said that what she hadn't said, but I acted like she had said. Because I knew if I could divide, I might conquer. The best way for your children not to divide you is to be one in Christ. Not one for your children. That's the blessing. One in Christ. And that's what your children need. So make it your priority to intentionally work on your relationship as a husband and wife. When we were in the early stages of ministry, 
my wife, um, a lady came up to us and said, I pray for y'all's marriage and I pray for your three children. And, um, and I want to give you something, um, Cindy. Um, I noticed that you do needlepoint sometimes, and this is a needlepoint I'd like for you to work on, and then therefore you work on it, and and and, and then you give it to Harry um, for me after you work on it. So she went work on the needlepoint, and I knew I was about to get a gift from this lady through my wife needlepointing what she had bought for her to develop, and then she gave it to me. I'll never forget it, and I still have it. The best thing a father can do for his children is love their mother. Now, I understand there's places you can critique there, but I have never forgot that. I cannot say I've been perfect in it, but I have never forgot that. The best thing a father can do for his children, it's not the only thing, but your fathering begins by loving your wife well and by learning how to love her better in the dynamics of life itself. Well, one of the last things I want to say from this Ephesians 6 text is this, these, um, these five crucial principles and then give you a takeaway in parenting. When you're parenting your children, remember they are born with a sin nature. As I said this morning, I found out who I was quoting. I just, I couldn't remember him. It just was in my mind. Um, you know, Adam and Eve had to be talked into sinning, right? Well, ever since then, the offspring of Adam and Eve can't be talked out of sinning. Why? We got a sin nature. It is only God's common grace that keeps us from being as sinful as we would be. So we have a sin nature. Your child has a sin nature. Secondly, remember, you parent from God's promises. And you parent according to his precepts. Biblical parenting. And your best practices must line up with God's promises and precepts in his word. Those promises that guide us and encourage us. I'll be a God to you and to your children after you. I will remember my covenant to you and to your children and your children's children. Believe on the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved, you and your household. The promise is for you and your children. Those wonderful promises undergird us and motivate us and encourage us. And then the general wisdom of God, the precepts such as train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Notice it doesn't say in his youth he won't depart. But when he is older, what you have poured in, God will use to bring him back. Now, that's not a promise. That's what we call divinely ordained common sense, but it's encouraging. Number three, your objective is your child's conversion. Can I just be obnoxious for a minute? Your objection in parenting is not their college degree. Even Auburn and Alabama. Your objective is not that they make the all-state team. 
Your objective is that they repent of their sins and confess it and come to Christ alone as Savior. That's your objective. Your objective is a heart focus. Yes, you let your children know from your heart you may not want to do this, but in this home you're going to do that. Yes, you have to do that for the orderliness and the environment of the home. But your objective is not to raise a Pharisee who is outwardly obedient. You want to get to their heart. You want to address their heart. Number four, parenting is a family affair. You need the extended family, the immediate family, the extended family, and you need God's family. One of the things I greatly love when I read Luke 2 and study Mary and Joseph and their parenting of Jesus. You ought to take that up sometime. And when you look at their parenting, there's one thing that steps out. And I don't know how else to say it, but perhaps like this. In Luke 2, it says that they were in the synagogue regularly. And in Luke 4, when Jesus is doing his public ministry, he came back to Nazareth to his, quote, home church. I've actually been there. I take people there. That synagogue now has a church built upon it in the same frame and architecture of a first century synagogue. And I've stood in there and thought about this, that Jesus stood right there. And he opened up Isaiah for the next reading. Because in the synagogue, they did what we try to do here, expository teaching, verse by verse. And they would read it each week. And he opened to the reading. It was in Isaiah. It was the year of Jubilee, the reading. And he read it. And then it says this. As was his custom. I I was talking with Cindy uh, this last week. And I said, you know, honey, one of the things I look back on life is, uh, in, when I was younger was the simplicity of life as opposed to so much complexity today. And secondly, the weightiness of life that I feel as a husband and a father and a pastor and a presbyter, the weightiness of it that I didn't have in my childhood. But one thing that's a helping me navigate this is what I learned. And my daddy and mama didn't send me to church. They took me. And I know they thought this is a waste of time. He is not listening. I was. I was. And what was planted was watered. And what was planted and watered was cultivated. And then it bore fruit in the perfection of God's timing in my conversion. Jesus and I have something in common. Our family was in the church to learn about Jesus. And the church was in our family because of Jesus. We didn't treat it as a specialty store that we might go to if they've got a good sermon topic this Sunday. 
It was something that was a vital part that my dad and mom had been taught to do by their, by my father's dad and mom. And they had embraced it and it bore much fruit in my life. Family, immediate family, extended family, God's family. Finally, be God-centered, not child-centered. Be God-centered, not child-centered. And I probably ought to add to this. In fact, why don't you add to it sometime later? Don't be child-centered and don't be parent-centered. How many of us are parent-centered? Here's what I mean. We have our children for ourselves. Well, we didn't get to do this, so we're going to have our children and live our life out through our children. Or our significance is in what our child does. And therefore, our children are not allowed to face adversity because we simply want them to be marked by success because that reflects on us. Be God-centered, take the long view, and be faithful in your parenting. Not child-centered, not parent. It's not about us and it's not about them. It's about God's glory through His grace in their life. And I'll conclude with this simple uh, but hopefully helpful. Uh, well, it's not simple. I, I'll conclude with this takeaway. From Ephesians 6, I'm going to give you another one in two weeks from Deuteronomy 6. A parental commitment to nurture Parenting, biblical parenting from Ephesians 6 is a parental commitment to nurture, evangelize, and disciple your covenant children. Can I just stop there? I really believe that's parenting, evangelizing and discipling. Bringing Christ to them and bringing them to Christ and then teaching them the word of God to follow Christ. A parental commitment to nurture, evangelize, and disciple your covenant children in the context of the covenant community, his church. According to God's covenant promises and biblical precepts, and you do it by the grace of God, that they may enjoy God and glorify him forever. Then we will know what the Apostle John has said. There is no greater joy than to see our children walking in the truth. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your word. Bless the fellowship of your people. Bless our attempt to disciple one another and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Thank you for the institution of creation, the family. Thank you for the institution of redemption, your church. Unite our families and the family of God together that our children would know our Savior and bring his good news to the next generation, even as we rejoice in the gospel taking hold of their heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.